Well, good morning again. It's good to see everybody. Hope everybody's day is off to a great start. Several weeks ago, we started looking at this idea of who is God, and each week we've been looking at just a different facet of that. So we've been talking about the, the privilege that we have to know God. We've been talking about uh, various uh, things that the Lord's revealed about Himself in the Scriptures. Uh, last week, we looked at what Scripture tells us about God the Father, and today we're looking at what Scripture reveals to us about God the Son. And uh, Matt Thomas, who runs our sound and uh, tech, uh, happened to peruse my slides before the service was beginning, and he said, yeah, I usually look over your slides just because I want to know what your starting slide is and what your ending slide is, so I make sure that I'm tracking with you as you're, as you're presenting and as you're speaking this morning. And he said, so I started going through your slides, and there's slide one, and there's slide two, and there's slide three, and there's slide four. And he's like, how many slides do you have this week? And he said, are we paying you by the slide? That was his, that was his question. So by the end of today's message, the, the truth is, there, I, that made me laugh, because even as I was putting the slides together this week, I was like, all right, there's kind of a high amount of slides, but I'll, I'll tell you ahead of time why that is. Uh, a few weeks ago when I was um, speaking on the concept, I believe it was the week that we were talking about knowing God, I had various things, and I just put the references up there for you, but I thought it would be better, since we're looking at many different scriptures, if uh, I just put a, created a slide for each of them, because I want to show you that the things that I'll be talking about today are not things that are just off the top of my head. These are not things that, that uh, are just my opinion. I want to show you directly what the Scripture says about these various aspects about Christ's identity and His ministry and the work that He's accomplishing. So very quickly, as we go through this morning, I'll bring those Scriptures up on the screen, but by the end of the morning, you'll probably agree with Matt that it's maybe quite a few slides, and that's okay. <laughs> so if you would, we're going to start today by looking at Matthew chapter 16. So we're in Matthew 16, and this is where we're going to begin, and then we're going to jump around to various other scriptures as well. But Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to be picking up at verse 13, and, uh, and we're going to go down to verse 17. And in Matthew chapter 16, starting with verse 13, this is what we read. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that as we take a look at this portion of Scripture today and as we focus specifically on who you are, your nature, various things that we learn about your work and your ministry. We pray, Lord, that you'd give us your insight, your clarity, your understanding, and that you'd help us to understand how the things that we're looking at from your word today are things that we need to know and understand and actually apply to our lives. Lord, we recognize this isn't just trivia. This isn't just so that we could pass some sort of a quiz or something of that nature. This is information that you've revealed to us about yourself so that we would know you more fully and more deeply. And so, Lord, we pray that that would be the result of our time together this morning. We pray that you would be honored and glorified and that we would know you more completely. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege to be able to look at these scriptures today, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So have you ever wondered uh, what kind of impact your life is having on others. You ever thought about that? I, I imagine that at some point we've probably all given some level of thought to that. As you interact with people, as I interact with people, I often wonder what kind of impact my life or your life or our lives are having on other people, particularly as we bear the name of Christ and represent Him in this world. 
And the truth is, we all have an impact on each other. Every single one of us has an impact on, one of, uh, on, on each other. Sometimes we influence each other for good. Sometimes uh, we influence each other in negative ways. Sometimes we impact people in ways that we never even fully realize, maybe because they've never told us or we've never had the opportunity to observe, or maybe we've impacted somebody that we've never even met personally. Uh, a few weeks ago, I mentioned the fact that there are certain things that I consider influences in my life that came from relatives that passed away long before I was born, but because I've heard of her, their example or heard of their, um, you know, just their life and some of the ways in which they went about their life, it's had an impact on me. And so we all have an impact on one another. Every life can be impactful in one respect or another. When you look throughout the course of history, which I very much enjoy doing, uh, I enjoy just sitting down and reading historical biographies in particular. And when you do that, you can observe in history the impact of some very influential people. There are people that have made an impact in all kinds of areas, including areas like the military, the arts, the sciences, theology, architecture, social culture. All of these things have had uh, an impact made on them because of the lives of very influential people. But there is no life that we can point to that has had a greater impact on each of these areas and more than the life of Jesus Christ. There's no greater example, no greater person that we could point to that has had an impact on daily life than him. The earthly ministry of Jesus Christ had a dramatic impact on this earth. We, so think about some of these things just for a second, and, and that would be a sermon really in itself, the kind of impact on a day-to-day -day basis the earthly ministry of Christ has had on this earth, and maybe sometime we'll consider looking at that just in its particulars. But when you think about some of the more obvious things, we look at the fact that we measure time in reference to when Christ walked among us. You know, our calendar revolves around that, that period of time. Uh, his teaching and his example influences how we treat one another and how we conduct ourselves in our marriages and how we show mercy and compassion and how we care for those who cannot care for themselves and how we respond to those who hate us and how we look forward to the future and how we spend our time right now in the present. These are all things that have been impacted by the teaching and the ministry and the life of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ came to this earth, he came to this earth with the goal of accomplishing all that was necessary for our salvation to become a reality. History prior to Christ coming to this earth was looking forward to his arrival. And history since his coming to this earth has been looking back at what he accomplished while also looking forward to his return. And in fact, I believe that the key to understanding the scriptures, if you're trying to, you know, if you're, if you're, put it this way, if you're a new student to the Bible, or if you're a seasoned student of the scriptures, I believe that the key to understanding what the Bible is communicating is to ask, how does this scripture point me to Jesus? The Lord wants to be known. The Lord wants us to know him. The Lord wants us to know things about him. There are many people who understand exactly who Jesus is. And there are many people on this earth who still struggle to accept who he is and what he taught. So who is Jesus and what is the work he's accomplishing? That's what we're looking at this morning. Now, I want to start off with this. I want to look at the Son's role in the Trinity. Last week we talked about the Father's role in the Trinity. Today I want to talk about the Son's role in the Trinity for starters. And I want to reread two of the verses that I just read from Matthew chapter 16. And in verse 15 of Matthew 16, it says this, He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And isn't that, by the way, the key question that all of us need to wrestle with? Who do we say that Jesus is? Right? I mean, even if we just pause the message right there, and just wrestle with that thought for the remainder of our time, there would be value in that. Because that's a question we all need to wrestle with. Who do we say Christ is? And that's the question Christ was posing to the disciples. He says, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So let's talk about the Son's role in the Trinity. From eternity past, Jesus Christ has always existed as the Son of God, or we could likewise refer to Him as God 
the Son. He's always existed in perfect relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And his role as the Son is not just a title that he adopted during the course of his earthly ministry, but it's a key aspect of his identity that has always been and always will be. And when Jesus Christ came to this earth, and when he took on flesh, and when he walked among us, there were many people who debated who he was. Some people considered him, when you look at what the Gospels say, some people, when they would look at what he would teach and what he would do, they looked at him and they said, isn't this the carpenter's son? So to some people, he was simply the carpenter's son. That's kind of, you know, what they thought of him. Other people thought he was a troublemaker because they'd see these large groups coming. And some of the crowds were vast. I mean, if you saw somebody, you know, just set up shop over here in this field and five to 10,000 people showed up to hear them, that would be a noteworthy or a newsworthy event. And the vast crowds were coming. And some people would look at Christ as he's proclaiming uh, the message of the kingdom to the crowds that had come to hear him. And they thought of him primarily as a troublemaker because he was interrupting the flow of normal religious life. Some people, when they asked who he was, and, or when they were asked who he was, considered him maybe a prophet. Some people thought he was one of the prophets of the Old Testament who maybe had returned. Some considered him mainly a mirror, or, or a, uh, like a worker of miracles. But Jesus looks at his disciples here in this passage of Scripture, and he says, all right, we've been hearing some of the theories and some of the thoughts that other people seem to pose as to my identity. And he says to them, who do you think I am? Who do you think I am? And I think it's interesting when you look at this portion of Scripture that it tells us that Peter spoke up. Do you ever notice Peter's an interesting character to read about in the Gospels because he's typically the guy uh, that, that speaks up and says something, for good or bad. Sometimes he looks intelligent, like in a moment like this. And other time he looks kind of foolish, and he puzzles you with what he's even thinking, like at the transfiguration, where he's trying to figure out, like, like what, what, what do we do? I, you know, we see Moses and Elijah appearing here with Christ. Do we, we got to box them in somehow. Do we want to, like, we'll build something, we'll put you in something. You want to be in something? You know, and sometimes I, I, you look at what Peter says, you're like, Peter, do you have any idea what you're saying right now? Sometimes he did, sometimes he didn't. He was the guy, though, that typically spoke up. And I imagine, I kind of get the impression when I look at the Gospels that the other uh, disciples looked at Peter sometimes maybe to be their spokesperson. I wonder if some of them were probably even egging him on, like, Peter, like, say this, like, ask him this or say this. But Peter speaks up. He's often the first to speak in the group, and he answers Jesus' question. Jesus says, you know, who do you think I am? Who do you say I am? And Peter says, the Christ the Son of the living God. That was Peter's response. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus affirmed the accuracy of this statement. And he also addressed the reason that Peter understood this. And he explains that the only reason Peter understood this was because God the Father had made that clear to him. God the Father had revealed that information to him. And I think that that brings up an interesting point that I want to stress now, even before we look at some of these details and supporting scriptures that we're going to look at in a few minutes. If you and I come to believe in Jesus Christ, meaning if you believe in Christ, if you trust in him as your Savior, as your Lord, as your God, we do so not because we got smart one day, not because all of a sudden we're intelligent, we do so because that information's been divinely revealed to us. That's something that God himself has made clear to your mind and to my mind. You believe in Jesus Christ. We do so because God himself has made that truth known to us. Naturally speaking, it would be much easier for us to think of Jesus merely as a teacher or merely as a historical figure. There are plenty of people that you know and I know that think of Jesus that way. There's even a movement now to try and deny, I think this is pretty impossible to do, but some people I guess will try, to even deny Jesus as a historical figure. It's like you have to erase a lot of very obvious history to try and make that kind of claim, but there are all sorts of people that would say it's much easier to think that way than it is to accept Christ for who he actually is. So if we do accept Christ for who he is, we only do so because that truth has been revealed to us. Our eyes have been divinely opened to see that truth. In fact, I like what it tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.14. It says, 
The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. These are things that are spiritually discerned. These are things that the Lord has made, made clear to us. These are not things that, naturally speaking, we would automatically come to an understanding of. So imagine being one of the believers living during the era of the early church. You and I have access to all sorts of useful information, theological study aids, messages that have been recorded, things that have been written down. We live in an information age where this stuff is widely disseminated. And during the early years of the early church, uh, believers would oftentimes try and get their theology straight about who is Jesus. And Scripture was not easy to come by. I mean, it would be passed along verbally, but to have a printed copy typically meant that someone took the time to write it down, and usually you would have fragments and you would have segments of it. Uh, if you look at, at copies of the Scriptures uh, back in, in history, you know, if a church had a copy of the Scripture, it was actually chained to the building, typically, uh, because it was so precious. It's like you don't want somebody just getting away with this thing, right? You know, now, you know, on our back table here, we have copies of the Scripture that I got for free, that we give out for free, and we freely disseminate them. And if you don't want them on paper, no problem. You could go online and get a free digital copy. It's so easy to get it. But during the days of the early church, to have access to the Scripture was a real privilege and a real blessing because not everybody had as easy access as maybe some people had. And uh, during the early days, the believers got together some officials, some religious officials, and they put together something that historically we refer to as the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed was put together in 325 AD, and it was an attempt by believers to put together a statement that described who is God. And in that statement, they also wanted to stress who specifically is Jesus Christ. Let me read a portion of this to you. It says this, it's one of the clearest statements the early church formulated. They said, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through Him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, He rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. So what they were doing is they were taking what they knew historically of Christ, and they were taking what they knew from the Scriptures and codifying it into a biblical statement that was a synopsis of what the Scriptures revealed. And so again, the Scriptures teach us that Jesus is divine in nature, and his role within the Trinity is one of eternal sonship. And he came to this earth as the long-promised Christ, Messiah, and Savior. Now, there's something interesting about Christ that we should focus on during our time as well. And Scripture reveals to us that, that there's a union of Christ's divine and human natures. So, one of the most fascinating aspects of Christ to contemplate is his nature. By nature, he is divine. He is God. But he also willingly chose to take on a human nature uh, when he submitted to the Father's will and was born on this earth as a man. And now he has two natures. He's 100% God, while at the same time being 100% man. And theologians have a term for this. And there's no quiz where I'm going to ask you this afterward, but if you do remember it, good for you. They refer to it as the hypostatic union. This union of his divine nature and his human nature. He's 100% God, but he also took on a human nature and became 100% man. Now, Jesus has always been God, but he hasn't always been human. But I want to show you several portions of Scripture that tell us 
they speak of the eternal divinity of Christ while also referencing His humanity. One of those scriptures is found in John chapter 1. Now, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 and then jump to verse 14. But it says this in John chapter 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word. Now, it's referencing Christ. He's being referred to here as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we have both Christ's divinity and His humanity referenced in these verses. I also want to show us from John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, you have a conversation taking place with Jesus where Jesus, right there in the flesh, is, is uh, discussing who He is with people who are questioning who He is. It says, So the Jews said to Him, You are not yet 50 years old, And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So you have Christ using this term, I am, using a phrase that's used uh, where, where, you know, in the Old Testament where the Lord says, My name is I am. Tell them I am has sent you. He, He makes reference to Moses. And here you have Christ telling them, Listen, I'm God right in front of you. But they're like, Wait a second, you're not even 50. You're not even 50 years old, so you have a reference here to his humanity, and Jesus is saying, look, even before Abraham was, I am self-existent from all eternity. Likewise, during the course of Christ's earthly ministry, he would often operate within the, the limits of humanity, and he would do this as an act of humility, he would do this as an act of submission to the Father. Uh, And he would do this with the goal of fulfilling all righteousness on behalf of mankind. A great portion of Scripture that references that is from Philippians 2, verses 5 to 7, where it says, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped." And the idea is like a thing to be selfishly held on to, right? But it says, "...but he emptied himself." By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So Philippians 2 speaks of that, speaks of that humility. It speaks of the fact that Christ would operate within the limits of humanity, that he came to this earth to serve humanity. So when you try and wrap your mind around that, you know, when I try and wrap my mind around, first of all, the Trinity, you know, how... God, how we have one God, but He exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe that to be true. But I also find it challenging to wrap my mind around that because I don't see anything else that provides a perfect parallel to that truth. There's nothing that ultimately can fully be compared perfectly with God. And so that's a a challenging concept to wrap my mind around. And I think I would put this idea, this hypostatic union, the union of Christ's 100% divinity and 100% humanity united together. I find that uh, hard to wrap my mind around as well, and yet Christ displays that it's absolutely true. So we accept this fact based on what the Lord reveals to us in His Word, but it's fascinating to contemplate. Now, this is where I want to jump to maybe a zillion slides, maybe slightly one less than a zillion But I'm going to show you these things, and then on Tuesday, I'm going to post all of these things online. So you're welcome to write the references down, but if you want, I'm going to post all of these online probably on Tuesday afternoon. But I want us to look at the fact that there's a work the Son accomplishes. Now, the other day, so this week, uh, now fully, all my kids are off from school. Everybody's done, you know, they all kind of, they all go to different schools, so they all finished at different times. And uh, I've been trying to get, before the weather gets hot, I've been desperately trying to accomplish some projects around the outside of my home that I've been putting off for too long. I, a couple of years ago, I wanted to get some of these things done. And I looked at them, and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to get those things done. And then the warm season came and went. And I was like, okay, maybe next year. And so the next year came, and I had good intentions, including all these bushes I was going to rip up, and all these things I was going to do to some of the landscaping rock and all that. And last year came and went, and they didn't get done. And this year has come, and the motivation 
hit me at the right time. You know how you have to have like the motivation hit you at the right time and also the pre-planned project that you've been thinking about for three years? And when they finally have that moment of synergy, something actually happens, right? So I've been getting a lot of the things done that I wanted to get done. I started in May and I've been trying to take a little time each week to work on them in segments, knowing, and as this week's temperatures start to prove, it gets warm soon, right? And uh, so one of those projects this week was I wanted to trim a whole bunch of juniper behind my house and make it level. And I also needed help digging up a whole bunch of landscaping rock. And while I was doing that, I walked through my family room and I was about to go into my garage to get set. And I looked at my son, Daniel, and he was on one of his first days home from school. I was trying to get this all done first thing in the morning because I knew that later in the day it was also supposed to rain. And I looked at him, and he's resting on the couch, and he looked at peace, really looked at peace. Like it looked, looked you know, like just a, a great experience. And I said to him, kind of ruining this day practically, right? I said, so I'm just going to admit to you that I would not be opposed to have your help with the rocks and the juniper out back. I'm just throwing that out there. I would really love your help, but I'm going to go now. And if you choose to join me, <laughs> I'm just letting you know that I won't be upset about it in the least. And I walked outside. I was like, I really hope he joins me. <laughs> I laid it on thick enough, didn't I? And uh, so I'm out there working. And at first I was like, ah, he opted for the couch. All right. Well, I can't blame him. It's, you know, first day, one of the first days uh, of no school. I was like, that's fine. And, uh, but then I, w- I came around the back and I was like, oh, he's here. He's helping me with the rocks. And he's, he's picking them out of, uh, out of the, the ground and, and setting them where I need them to go. And I was like, I was thrilled <laughs> because he could have used the time just to sit around and rest. And I wouldn't have blamed him if he chose to, but I was really grateful to have his help. And it was nice to see, instead of him sitting around doing nothing, maybe staring at a TV or staring at an iPad, it was nice to see him doing something productive. So I thanked him for it. In fact, I I rewarded him with a cookies and cream milkshake later in the day. So, um, But I was grateful to have his assistance. I was thankful that my son came and assisted me. And it's interesting when you look at what the Scripture tells us about Jesus Christ, because it tells us that Jesus, the Son of God, has a work that he is joyfully accomplishing. Scripture tells us multiple things about the work of Christ, including what he's already accomplished, what he's currently accomplishing, and what he promises to do in the future. Now, one of the earliest aspects of the work of Jesus Christ that Scripture tells us about is in regard to his work in creation. Scripture tells us that all things were created through Jesus Christ. And in addition to creating all things, we're also told that he upholds his creation by his powerful word. Let me show you a couple of scriptures. One is from Colossians 1.16. It says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. By the way, this scripture often comes to my mind when I hear people flippantly use the name of Christ. It's like, don't you realize that he created you? Like, he just toss his name out there like it doesn't matter. Don't you realize he created you? That he created what you see. All things were created through him. And then the scripture says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things have been created through him. And scripture also tells us in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 3, it says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That one fascinates me, particularly when you think about the fact that Christ is 100% God and 100% man, and for a season of time, he came to this earth as an infant. And yet the scripture tells us he upholds, as a continual thought, he upholds creation, right? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So that infant is the one who's upholding creation by the word of his power. That 12-year-old, you know, when he was 12, upholding the universe by the word of his power. It's easier for me to think about Christ in his glorified state upholding the universe by the word of his power. 
But yet, I mean, consider that. He, all creation was made through him, and he upholds what he has created by the word of his power. That's what Scripture reveals to us about him. Another key aspect about Christ's work is his work of atonement. Specifically, he atoned for our sin. He paid for our sin through living the perfect life on our behalf, a life we could never live. You know, if you try and live the perfect life, if I try and live the perfect life, guess what? We will discover areas where we drastically fall short. So Christ came to this earth to live the perfect life on our behalf and then to experience death in our place, a substitutionary death. He atoned for our sins in doing so. He paid for our sins. He took our condemnation upon himself. This is another key aspect of the work of Christ. In fact, in 1 Peter 3.18, it says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christ accomplished that on our behalf. Now, following Christ's atoning death, so after he's died, after he's experienced death on our behalf, Jesus rose from the grave. And in his resurrection, Jesus defeated things that at once were defeating us. So we were once defeated by sin. Well, Christ defeated sin for us when he rose from the grave. We were once defeated by Satan. Well, Christ defeated Satan when he rose from the grave. We were once defeated by death. So Christ defeated death when he rose from the grave. And he offers forgiveness of sin and he offers eternal life to anyone who will trust him as Lord. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, it says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance. So you have the Apostle Paul referencing this message as being of first importance. He says, For I delivered you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So Christ atoned for our sin and then rose from the grave. Now, after Christ's resurrection, so this is all, we're speaking about this ongoing work of Christ, the work He's accomplished in the past, the work He's accomplishing now, the work He is yet to accomplish in the future. But after Christ's resurrection, that work continues. And He appeared to people in bodily form, the Scripture tells us, for 40 days, So for 40 days, he was appearing to different people in bodily form. And then he ascended back to heaven. And the scripture tells us that he's preparing a place for all those who trust in him. And in the future, the scripture tells us that he will be likewise returning to take those who trust in him to be with him. I like what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 3. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So he's preparing a place for us and he's promising to return for us. Now at present, when you think about what Christ is doing right now, there are things that scripture tells us about his role, about his activity, about the things that he's doing on our behalf that are valuable, valuable to us right now in the present. He has a ministry of intercession He has a ministry of advocacy, and they go hand in hand. Now, when you look at what Scripture tells us about Satan, and there's a variety of things that Scripture tells us about Satan, but when you look at the things that Scripture tells us about Satan, one of the things that Scripture tells us is that Satan is an accuser. So Satan looks at the people of God, Satan looks at God's people, and he points out our faults. So he points out your faults, he points out my faults, and he brings accusation against us. It's referred to as the accuser of the brethren. And sometimes, by the way, I think he loves to get in the heads of those who believe in Jesus Christ so that we start doing his job for him. Mainly, have you ever spent a season of time in your life where the the primary message going on in your mind is one of accusation or shame or blame, where you start replaying all your worst hits, right, throughout the course of your life, where you start remembering, oh, this was a time where I made a very foolish mistake or... This was a moment in time that if I could relive, I'd relive it and do it differently. This is a mistake I made when I was young. This is a mistake I made recently. And you start telling yourself, you're terrible, you're foolish, 
you're, not, you're barely even a Christian, you're a poor representation of Christ, and on and on and on that, that goes through like, like a, a recording in your mind that you just play over and over again. And I think in those moments, Satan loves to just kind of clap his hands and say, yes, exactly, keep preaching that to yourself over and over and over. Keep accusing yourself. So I could take the afternoon off. You know, let me take the afternoon off. Usually I like to accuse you, but if you're going to take my role for me and you do that, that's great. I love a good Sunday afternoon nap, right? Satan is the accuser. Scripture tells us that Christ is our intercessor and Christ is our advocate. Scripture reveals to us that Christ sits at the right hand of God, the Father, and he pleads our case like a defense lawyer. We're defended, by Je- we're defended from accusation by Jesus, our advocate, who testifies to the fact that our sin has been atoned for by his blood, and now in the Father's eyes we are holy and blameless and righteous with the righteousness of Christ. Romans chapter 8 says this, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, is, who indeed is interceding for us. In 1 John 2, 1, we're also told, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have a defense lawyer before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He intercedes, and he's our advocate. Jesus also made it clear that during this era, he's building his church. Millions and millions of people are being rescued from sin and being rescued from condemnation through faith in him. He's raising up leaders, he's opening up doors for ministry, and he's blessing those who trust in him with his power. Look at what he says later in Matthew 16. We started with the scripture today, but in Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus said, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Christ is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against what Christ is building. And it's kind of interesting to consider. I mean, we live, don't you feel like at at, at this point now, even in our culture, we're effectively in a post-Christian culture. Effectively, right? I mean, when I, when I look at, you know, all the different things that are scheduled for times when, you know, churches typically gather together for worship, obviously unbelievers aren't thinking about the fact that, you know, believers gather together typically on Sunday mornings to worship. And so, you know, this world is, everything gets scheduled on a Sunday. And so that to me is evidence of a post-Christian culture, the fact that that's not on the minds of people. When you look at how people treat all sorts of things like relationships, marriages, uh, ethics, all sorts of things. I mean, we very much live in a post-Christian culture. And sometimes I look around and I think, I, you, you feel so you want to affect change, right? You want to help people see their need for Christ, and you want to see that reflected even in the culture in which we're blessed to live. And sometimes it feels like, wow, it just feels like everything is just going further and further and further away from Him. It just seems that way sometimes. Maybe you struggle with that thought sometimes too. And then you look at a portion of Scripture like this, and what does it say? Christ says that He's building His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Isn't it nice to be reminded of that fact? He's doing that right now. He's saving millions of people. He's drawing people unto himself. He's, he's raising up leaders. He's, he's opening up doors. He's doing all sorts of things to actively build his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against what Christ is building. The Word of God also tells us that the day is going to come when Christ will return to this earth and he will rule and he will reign, and he will show himself to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and his kingdom will have no end. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 says this, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. We're also told that the day is coming when Christ will sit on his throne and judge the nations. In Matthew chapter 25, it says this, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. 
Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Um, I actually saw, I, I don't know if you've seen it yet, uh, there's a, a movie out right now about Mr. Rogers. I don't know if you've seen it. I think uh, it's called Would You Be My Neighbor? I think it's the name of it. I went and saw it yesterday. And uh, do you know what on, on his deathbed uh, Mr. Rogers said to his wife? I just learned this yesterday. I already prepared my sermon. I was finished at the end of the week. Um, but he said to his wife, his question for her was, do you think I'm one of the sheep? He was referencing this scripture. I was like, oh, I'm referencing that sermon in my, or that scripture in my sermon tomorrow. Thanks, Mr. Rogers, for giving me some bonus material. But that's what he said to his wife. He said, do you think, do you think I'm one of the sheep? That was on his mind, you know, when he was, when he was near death. You know, as the scripture says, before him will gather all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The idea he's, he's saying, you know, I, w- I want to be one of Christ's people. Like, like, and, and his wife said, Fred, you know Jesus. You know, you love Jesus. If anyone's a sh- one of his sheep, I think we are one of his sheep. But that was his concern. That's what was on his mind. That's what he wanted to hear his wife repeat back to him uh, when he was near passing away. And the day is coming when Christ is ultimately going to be the one who makes that determination. Now, I think it's fascinating to consider the work that Christ has done, is doing, and will do. And I, thought, I think it's also important to recognize that, that while we have the privilege to serve with Him, as He empowers us to do so, we can't do this work for Him. I think sometimes people think that they could look at Jesus and say, Jesus, you know what? You take a break. I will take it from here. And that's not how it works. We have the privilege to work with Him as He empowers us But ultimately, we can't do this work for Him. He accomplishes what we never could. And as we serve Him, He also invites us to confidently trust Him to take care of what He promised He would. And there's one other thing that I want to point out to us this morning as we finish up, and that's this. Salvation is found in no other name. Salvation is found in no other name. Look at what it tells us in uh, Acts chapter 4. Verse 12, it says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation is found in no one else or nothing else. People are looking. I mean, intrinsically, we know there's something that we need. We know that there's a vacuum within us. We know that there's a void within us. Everybody knows that, and everybody's trying to fill it with something. Every person you know is trying to fill that void. Some people are trying to fill it with philanthropy. Some people are trying to fill it with good works. Some people are trying to fill it with uh, all sorts of like, you know, just various uh, forms of thought from around the world. Or, you know, some people are trying to fill it with uh, things related to their career or their status or the identity that they try and carve up, even as a parent. We're all trying to fill this missing piece that exists within us. We all also recognize You know, our hearts and our minds recognize that we have been designed to live ongoing, eternally. And we're all wrestling with these things, and people try and either squelch these thoughts, or they try and fill them with things that can't fill them, or they recognize what Jesus has said to be true and what He's revealed through His Scriptures. Salvation is found in no other name. I can look for salvation all throughout this world, but I will never find it until I find Christ. No one else has paid for my sin. No one else has rescued me from the condemnation that I deserved. No one else came to this earth and lived the perfect life on my behalf. No one else made me. No one else created me. No one else is coming to rule and reign over the nations. Nobody else is coming to separate the sheep from the goats and making His judgment. It's Christ. He's the one that rescues. He's the one that redeems. No one else died for me on a cross. No one else took my punishment for me. Only Jesus did. So if I'm trying to find salvation in any other name, in any other thing on the face of this earth, I'm going to come up short. The moment I recognize that there's no other name under heaven other than the name of Jesus Christ by which I may be saved, That's where I'll find salvation, in Christ. 
And that's what Scripture wants us to understand, that He is the Savior, that He is the Rescuer, that He is the one who delivers us from the condemnation that we deserved and had coming. Do you ever look at this concept that sometimes people throw out there when they look at their life and they're upset about something that they've experienced that isn't what they would have chosen? And they, they make a statement that says something like, what did I do to deserve this? Or maybe you've even asked that question yourself. What did I do to deserve this? What did I do to deserve this? Or you could even ask it on the reverse. If a lot of good things start coming your way, you could ask yourself the question, what did I do to deserve this? And the answer to both questions is n- nothing. You didn't, you know, or let me rephrase it. The answer to the second question what did, I, what did I do to deserve this, right? Um, as far as the good stuff, nothing, right? What did I do to deserve the bad? Um, you know, we all deserve one thing from God. And it's condemnation and judgment. That's the only thing we deserve from Him. Maybe it's a better way to phrase it. I think I phrased that a little trickily when I was saying that there. You have to forgive me. I had a lot of slides today. It's just overload, right? I mean, we look at, we look at our life, and, we, and, and the idea is, I, I guess what I'm getting at is we, we look at life and we think, I don't deserve anything bad. You know, I, I, it's like, I, I think that like somehow um, all I deserve is for everything to just be perfect and fine. And we realize, no, the only thing we actually deserved was condemnation. The only thing we deserved was eternal separation from our Creator. And yet Scripture reveals to us that in His love and in His compassion, He looked at us and He said, I see the mesh you've made and I'm going to do something about it. God the Father orchestrated our salvation and sent God the Son to accomplish it. The Holy Spirit to apply it. And you and I have the privilege to experience salvation as a gift if we will trust in Jesus Christ. We will simply trust in Jesus who accomplished all the work that was necessary on our behalf. And if we believe in Him, our sin is forgiven, we're given the gift of His righteousness, and we can be assured that we will spend eternity in His presence as one of His sheep, as one of His family, as one who has been blessed with His name. And He joyfully supplies that to all who trust in Him. So as we finish up, let me throw out three questions. Question number one is this. Have you experienced the salvation that Christ delights to supply you? Have you experienced it? Second question is this. If you have experienced it, are you walking in the power and in the wisdom of Christ daily? Because just as He supplies your salvation, He supplies the wisdom and power that you need to walk with Him daily. And the third question is this. Is your outlook toward the future joyful because of the hope Christ has secured for you? When we look at what the Scriptures reveal, the Scripture invites us to ask these questions. Because Christ wants us to wrestle with that initial question that He threw out to the disciples. Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? It's a question for us to wrestle with as well. Jesus Christ is our Savior, the Son of the living God, and He desires to rescue anyone who trusts in Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're grateful for the privilege that it is to be able to come together in your name this morning, celebrating the fact that you delight to rescue us. Lord, the only thing we deserved was condemnation. The only thing we deserved was your wrath. But joyfully and willingly, you showed us compassion, you showed us mercy. You've given us the opportunity to know you and love you and trust in you. You've made it abundantly clear in your word that salvation is found nowhere else, that you are 
our only option. There isn't a plan B. There isn't a secondary source of salvation. You are where salvation is found. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have the power to fill the void that we can sense is present in our lives without you. You fill that void. You help us to understand who you designed us to be. You restore the kind of relationship with you that you've desired from eternity past that we would have. And we're grateful for that, Lord. So, Lord, you know where our hearts are this morning. You know that if any of us is distant from you, Lord, I pray that if that is the case with anyone gathered here today, first off, Lord, I'm glad that in your sovereignty you've allowed each and every one of us to be in this room to meditate on the scriptures today. However we got here, Lord, I'm glad that we're here, and we thank you for that. But if there's anyone that, as of yet, has not experienced the joy of your salvation, I pray, Lord, that you'd wrestle with their mind, wrestle with their heart right now, so that today would be the day that they answer the question that you pose to your disciples with the understanding of who you truly are, that you are God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, for those of us in this room that have known you for a while, but maybe have been relying a little bit too much on the work of our own hands and not on the work that you're accomplishing, we pray, Lord, that our trust in you would be something that would mature and develop daily so that we would go through life resting in and relying on your wisdom and your power, knowing that you give us the privilege to serve with you, but we can't accomplish the work that only you can accomplish. So thank you, Lord, for the privilege to partner with you in what you're doing. But we know, Lord, that we need to rest in who you are and what you accomplish, knowing that you can do what we cannot. And Lord, we're just joyful about the future that we have in you. We know, Lord, that our days on this earth are brief. We're here for just a short season, and then abruptly, and often without warning, our time here is finished. And we thank you that for those of us that know you and love you, we can be confident that the moment that season, this season right now ends, that we're ushered right into your presence. You acknowledge us as your own, and we have the joys of seeing your face for all eternity. Lord, these are gifts from you that we are not deserving of, but we're grateful for. And we thank you, Lord, for the privilege to be able to have just such easy access to your word, that we can look at what your word says, that we can meditate on these things, and that we can grow in our walk with you as a result. Thank you, Lord, for your blessings. Thank you for your goodness. We commit ourselves to you now, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.